1: Welcome back to the Two Tongues Podcast. What's up, you guys? Long time no talk. Not really. It's been a week. Kyle's on vacation this week, though, so Sunday will be interesting. Don't know what I'll do. This this one might air Sunday. We shall see. So what's up, you guys? Been, um, been getting into the Carl Young business quite a lot. Uh, just finished reading a couple of chapters of the Red Book and I thought, yeah, it's, an, it's, it's about time for another episode of uh, Gandalf the Red. So that's what you're going to get from me today. Gandalf the Red Part 5. This is actually the, the last three chapters of the first part of the Red Book, so we're wrapping up the first set of visions that uh, Carl Jung had. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word, but I'm going with it. Visions. Uh, Gandalf the Red Part 5. So if you guys remember, we've been bouncing around a little bit between Carl Jung and his two, uh, or two of his more notable pupils, um, Neumann and Von Franz. And I think I'm really having fun doing it, actually. Bouncing around between the three, it's been pretty interesting. So I'm going to keep doing that. Um, I expect the next couple of podcasts will just be bouncing back and forth. The good news is Neumann and Von Franz were students of young, so all this stuff is gonna melt right together. It's interesting to me kind of working through an understanding of Young's ideas this way, because the students of Young have a different perspective and uh maybe take some of these ideas a little further um or at least say them differently and, and I don't know if you noticed that about me, but when I'm trying to say something confusing, uh, a lot of times I'll try to say it uh in different ways. You know, I'll say the same thing two or three times in different ways. Because things don't always resonate for everybody, uh, at least not the same way. And so, I, I, you know, if I was looking at you in the eyes and I had the benefit of body language, I could tell which one of those metaphors uh, lands, but this is a podcast. So that's what happens. Um, and so anyway, I I, I felt that was quite quite the same thing for me, reading von Franz and Neumann, uh, getting different takes on Jung from different perspectives and uh, using different words. And um, like I say, some of those things work. So... Um, that brings us to maybe a little bit of a recap. So since, since we've been bouncing around, uh, maybe I'll just mention when we started Gandalf the Red when we started Carl Jung's Red Book, what we were talking about was, well, just really personal shit that Jung was doing, kind of experiments that he was doing um, with himself, with his consciousness, where he would induce fantasy like you might say daydreaming, but maybe something more intense than daydreaming, something like a cross between a lucid dream and a daydream. And Carl Jung understood that process as getting in touch with the unconscious, you know, the place where our thoughts come from, the place where our ideas come from. Um, the part of ourselves that is a part of ourselves, but you know, we don't have direct access to it, our unconscious, you know that's the mystery part of being a human being, this attachment we have to the unconscious. What is it? You know, what in the world is it and what does it mean that we're all connected to this unconscious? What does it mean that when we, every night when we fall asleep, we go into this dream world? Uh, and all of us do, you know, and and it's similar in, in, you know, the images that we see in our dreams and in our myths and in our fairy tales and things like that. These are the things that Jung was playing with in his imagination and, um, uh, you know, it got really interesting. You know, Carl Carl Jung is diving into his own fantasy world and uh, telling us about the spirits and the images and the things that he's encountering and where those things come from. You know, it's, it's not deliberate, right? Carl Jung is just, he's not trying to imagine spirits. He's just clearing his mind and letting things pop into his head. And that's, there's something, well, there's something magical about that, really. There's something supernatural about that. It's, um, I mean, I, I've asked the question many times before, but where do, your, where do your thoughts come from? Where do your interests come from? You know, how can you explain that something calls, calls to you, that something grasps your attention? You find it interesting and it pulls you towards it. What in the world kind of forces that? You know, when you encounter something new that you've never encountered before and you find it interesting, what's, what's the origin of that? Why that thing and, and not some other thing? This is the kind of mystery um, that surrounds the unconscious, you know, where our impulses and drives and instincts are are coming from, and they all seem to be married with these images that we that we are familiar with, you know. <laughs> Even if you don't remember your dreams, like like me, I'm not I'm not great at that. Even if you don't remember your dreams, you recognize the characters, you know, after a little bit of. Uh, after a little bit of examination, you're like, oh, yeah, that's something like a, a myth. That's something like a, uh, um, you know, a, re- a religious story. That's something like um, a revelation and, uh, you know, a fairy tale or what have you. Um, and those things resonate with us. I and mean, why they resonate with us is, is a mystery. It's like we're familiar with these images that Carl Jung is, is talking about. We're familiar with these things that are in our unconscious, that we can't quite describe, that seem very mysterious to us, yet they resonate with us. You know, We, we would see you know, any kind of hero or villain, like let's say at the most basic level in a story, whether that be a myth or a movie or, or a show or whatever it is, and it's like we know that person. You know the hero. You know, you know the struggling um, pre-hero person that's struggling trying to become the hero, going through all their trials and tribulations? We know that person. The person who fails and gives up, we know that person. The person who fails and picks themselves back up and tries again, we know that person too. The person that sabotages somebody else, the person that hurts someone they love for this reason or that, we know that person too because we are that person. We've been that person. And... Those sorts of things are what are what's encapsulated in these images, and what the images evoke when we see them. And Carl Jung's playing with these. And when he started, it was really interesting to me because you could tell he was diving into his unconscious, looking for something. Because he kept using words like he was longing, you know, um, seeking and longing. And so he kept struggling with his unconscious, even during times when it was unpleasant. And you might remember when he found himself in the desert of his soul, you know, like he, he talked about living so much in the outside world, living through other people, living through his own thoughts and and failing to realize that he wasn't living in his self. You know, he was living in outside of himself you know, all of his attention and all of his consciousness was constantly pushed outside of himself and he hadn't spent any time with himself, by himself, meditating, you know, praying, trying to understand his own thoughts and, and interests and desires and impulses. And so that's what he did. He sunk down into his self. He took some solitude and some time to reflect. And he found that when he did that, his soul was a desert. That's what he said. It's like, look, nobody's been tending this, this garden. It, no one's been tending this house. It's fallen apart. And that's what he found when he tried to sink into his own self and just stay there for a minute and um and it was painful for him and he was he began to encounter spirits, the spirit of this time, the spirit of the depths, the image of his own soul as a woman um, all of these things he 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 spoke to and communicated with and struggled with and what the the coolest part for me was hearing him admit how scared he was and how little he understood like very honest shit that most people are not willing to admit. No one likes to say, I don't know. No one likes to say I'm scared, especially a fully grown man, you know, and that's what Carl Jung was doing. And part of that truth, part of that genuineness of, of the red book comes from the fact that he was having a discussion with himself, that, that this is something that was very personal to him, something that he didn't Anticipate necessarily even publishing to the wider world something that was published after he died. So, you know, that's what we're dealing with. And it's really cool. The honesty is really cool. You know, seeing the, the frailties and the flaws in Carl Jung's himself, noticing him notice them. And, you know, following the things he didn't understand because he wants wisdom, you know. You, you kind of imagine... Most academics, anyway, as, some, as somebody who, well, they are wise, or they have the perception of being wise, and people go to them to learn. And Carl, Carl Jung is supposed to be one of those people. And you see in the Red Book, he's just as lost as any of us, and he's seeking for truth just as much as any of us. And everybody seeks until they are satisfied. And it doesn't mean they have the full answer or the right answer. People seek until they get an answer that satisfies them and they stop looking and Carl Jung's just continues looking, you know? Um, in any case he makes progress in in these visions, these one after the next, after the next, he makes progress with these visions. Um, he, he has a conflict where he's trying to understand, um, God, he's trying to understand where consciousness comes from and what the origin of the mystery of existence is and he kept struggling with the idea that it's that god as a concept is not a complete idea not the way that we generally understand it not the way he understood it or or hoped that it was and that's an interesting thing you know he's like he hoped that god was something like the philosophers of old said it was that god is all good that god is all knowing that god is eternal and infinite and the all good part just kept sticking to him like a thorn in his side and he had to realize that god is whole god is is a completion god is everything so to understand god as good only as the highest possible good that's something that lots of philosophers have said you know st anselm comes to mind and um and he knew you know, subconsciously or unconsciously, that it wasn't the full picture. And part of that fantasy um, in in the early part of the Red Book was him coming to terms over and over and over again with this conflict that God is a completion, a wholeness, that God is one, like the mystic experience says. And what that means is if you call God all good, you must also call him all evil. If you don't, you're missing half the picture. And that is such an important idea. It's something that our, in the Western world, our religious tradition has kept us from, you know, from even asking that question. So he had trouble with that. And when he finally got over that, things started changing in his fantasy world. He, he started going deeper. He started feeling like he had some grasp on things and he didn't stop though. He never stops. He just keeps going deeper, you know, and every time he does, it's, it's a big risk, you know, and he says as much that he's scared, you know, constantly, but he's longs and he yearns and he keeps going. Um, and that takes us to this encounter with his soul where he realizes that, that what he can become or what he wants to become is something like God, something that's complete. And that's what his yearning is, is pulling him towards. And that he has to change his self. He has to change his, his psyche in order to become whole. He has to make conscious within him or awaken within him all of these things that are unconscious and repressed and not allowed to exist in him, including the very lowest things and the, and the evil and those things that he tried to pr- he tried to insulate himself from, especially in the, in the concept of God. And just like the concept of God, Carl Jung's the concept of his own self has to has to incorporate, well, the truth that he's not just one thing, good. He's also evil, just like we all are. And and it goes beyond that. But those 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 um those representations, you know, good and evil, that dichotomy is as good as any. And and it it relates to this idea of the Ouroboros, the union of opposites, the thing in symbol, the Ouroboros is the thing that was there in the beginning. The thing that you might call God, and this is the image of God that mankind is is made after. You know, from the from the biblical side of things, the image of God is the thing that we imitate that we're trying to become complete. Like God is complete. Um, psychological terms sometimes use the phrase self-actualization and things like that. That's what that's what they mean to become complete within yourself. You know, and and the early parts of the red book or the you know the, the parts that we read just before this they talk about that like c- they called it civil war civil war within yourself that you've got this established order you've got this thing that you identify as yourself and all your thoughts and memories and experiences and preferences and all that stuff that you think of when you think of yourself and you know that there's more more that you might become you know more that's needed so that you can become complete and some of those things that you thought of as yourself, they have to be sacrificed for you to achieve that next level, for you to become that new self that you want to become. And that civil war, it's described, like Jung at, at war with his own soul. His soul wants to transform, and it's dangerous and hard and painful, and there's some resistance and reluctance involved, but Carl Jung just keeps on going anyway, keeps on going. That brings us to, that brings us to these last few chapters of the first part of the book, the first one, first one I'm going to call Mysterium Encounter, and the vision, which as these things usually begin with, is again another thing evoked from Carl Jung's own psyche in what he called active imagination. So put yourself in the shoes of Carl Jung. You know, he's the uh, you know the great psychs, uh, scholar, the great founder of depth psychology the the deep and mysterious thinker in the modern age of science he's something like a scientist and something like an alchemist you know he's some kind of combination and he's sitting in his office he's sitting in his study probably i imagine And he's smoking a pipe, or maybe that's Freud. I keep mistaking the two. um, He's, you know, he's, uh, whatever. He's got the fire in the background, the flickering flames, and the shadow. The mystery, kind of put yourself in that scene. The old tomes up on the shelf, the ancient books. And Carl Jung is sitting there meditating. Waiting for images to pop into his head. Waiting for the unconscious to speak through him. And this is what happens. He says... On the night when I considered the essence of the God, I became aware of an image. I lay in a dark depth. An old man stood before me. He looked like one of the old prophets. A black serpent lay at his feet. Some distance away I saw a house. A beautiful maiden steps out of the door. She walks uncertainly, and I see that she is blind. The old man waves to me, and I follow him to the house at the foot of a sheer wall of rock. Darkness reigns inside the house. Suddenly, a door opens onto a garden of full, bright sunshine. We step outside, and the old man says, Do you know where you are? I'm going to stop right there. All right, so this is how the fantasy opens. This is these are the images that come to mind. You can see how it's how it plays out very like a dream. And things sort of jump around to different strange images and they don't always seem connected with each other, but Jung doesn't seem to notice, you know? Like like you wouldn't notice in the dream. And so the first thing that happens here is he encounters this old man, you know, this robed old man, uh, assuming with a white beard, somebody that reminds him of, a, of an old prophet, of an ancient prophet. And there's a black serpent at, at the prophet's feet. And then he sees a house in the distance and a woman walks out and she, he can tell that she's blind. So this is what's happening so far. The old man waves him over and he, and he notices that this house is right there at the, at the wall of, of of a mountain, of a great rock, of a mountain. And inside the house is dark. And I have to I have to imagine that this house at the edge of the mountain, it's sort of like, like a door into the mountain, you know? That's why it's dark in there because you, you walk down into the earth and what do you expect in a cave or in a cavern or whatever? It's dark. It's dark. You can't see your hand in front of your face. That's how dark it is. And so what do you suppose that represents you know, it's, it's something that represents descending into the mountain, descending into the underworld, right? That's where we imagine that the underworld was, you know, down in the earth or, or uh, you know, inside of the mountain or inside of the hill or whatever, in this dark place where consciousness can't go, right? Consciousness is associated with light and seeing, right? And we see, you know, the thing behind our eyes, we imagine is our consciousness. So the place where we can't see is the place where consciousness doesn't go. It's the world of the dead, the underworld, you know, the unconscious. And that's, that's what's inside this house. And then a door opens, and there's some place to go there. And there's a bright, sunny place. And the old man asks if Carl Jung knows where he is. So it's important to understand that the prophet, that just the idea of a prophet, that's somebody who's far-seeing, right? That's somebody who can see the future, the prophet, right? And he's also a man. He's depicted as a man. But then we also have the woman who, who, who's walking out of the house. So she's, she's the opposite of the prophet, right? She's blind, right? The prophet is the far seer. The woman is blind. So she's the opposite. And obviously, you know, one is a man and one is a woman. So you can see, you can see what's intended here, that these images are they're opposites, just like the image of the Ouroboros, the masculine and the feminine, the seer and the blind person. These are opposites. Now, they're embodiments, they're symbolic embodiments of these opposites, and they're leading Jung into the unconscious. So that's what that's what I see here. Then Carl Jung says, who are you? He asked the prophet. And the prophet says, I am Elijah, and this is my daughter, Salome. And he points over to the woman, the blind woman. So I have to, I have to mention Elijah is an old Testament prophet. For those of you who know the Bible that goes back way, way before the new Testament. When Salome shows up, um, Salome, for those who don't, who don't remember, um, she's the person that had, that had John the Baptist killed. There's all sorts of art, um, uh, If you look up Salome art, you'll probably find tons of Renaissance paintings of John the Baptist decapitated his head on a platter, and Salome's holding the platter with a smile on her face. That's Salome. So you also see this drastic difference between Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, you know, and Salome, who's the slayer of John the Baptist, right? You know, couldn't get more opposite, right? It's also important to remember that these characters belong to completely different epochs of time. You know, the Old Testament prophets go back deep into the, uh, you know, into the, into the um, antiquity and, and Salome, of course, uh, much closer to the first century. So they could not have been father and daughter, right? And Elijah says, I am Elijah and this is my daughter, Salome. And I think this is another, this is another piece of evidence for the fact that these people are symbolic. Um, the characters themselves are symbolic um, in, in the dream. And uh, Carl Jung says, "What miracle has united you?" And I think that's a, re- that's a realization of, well, what I just said. Elijah and Salome are from di- completely different epochs of time and would never have met each other, but they're also opposites in every way that seems to matter. And Carl Jung says, "What miracle has united you?" Elijah answers, "It is no miracle. It was so from the beginning. My wisdom and my daughter are one. My wisdom and my daughter are one. That's interesting. How can the wisdom of the uh, this prophet figure be this be this woman who slayed John the Baptist, you know, the innocent, you know, godly man. But it's also interesting when he says my wisdom and my daughter are one, what he's saying is myself and my daughter are one. Opposites united right? That's the idea of the Ouroboros, opposites in union. That's the generative magic from which the cosmos was born and all of our creation myths. And when you go into the unconscious, this is what Carl Jung has encountered, the Ouroboros, you know, in symbolic form as Elijah and Salome. And Jung says, I am shocked. I am incapable of grasping it. And Elijah says, her blindness and my sight have made us companions through eternity. And what not that interesting? Her blindness and my sight have made us companions through eternity. Now remember, when he said, my wisdom and my daughter are one, you have to imagine, he's the far seer, she's the blind person. They are one, so they've been companions through eternity. You can see how they complete each other blind person and the far seer, you bring them together and then they are complete. The blind the blind can see through the prophet. So they complete one another. And that's what the Ouroboros is a symbol of the wholeness, the oneness, the completion. The thing that Gar Jung understands is God, the thing that in the mystic experience comes through as the unity of the universe, the one, you know? And now Salome comes in, she says to, uh, to Young, she says, do you love me? And Young says, your hands are stained with blood of the Holy One. How should I love you? And Elijah says, what do you want? The choice is yours. And not that strange? So, so you can see how, Yo- how Young is reluctant to embrace Salome. He doesn't want to think of Salome as a part of the prophet, just like he didn't want to think about God being evil and good. He only wanted to think of God being good in the earlier in the earlier um, uh, revelations. And here he he feel he gravitates towards the prophet. He he wants to be himself something like the prophet. He doesn't want to be anything like Salome. And Salome asks, do you love me? And he's like, what? why would I love you? you? You're the one that killed John the Baptist. There's nothing good in you. Why would I want you? Why would I love you? And Elijah reminds him that the choice is his, to love her or not. <laughs> and and why, why would he want to love her? Why should he love her? What does that even mean? And that's exactly what Jung says next. He says, you pose dreadful riddles. How could it be that this unholy woman and you, the prophet of God, could be one? And Elijah says, why are you amazed? But you see it. We are together. And Jung says, my eyes, what my eyes see is exactly what I cannot grasp. You, Elijah, who are the mouth of God, and she, a bloodthirsty horror, you are the symbol of the most extreme contradiction. And Elijah says, we are real and not symbols. Man, that makes the hair stand up on my arms. So when Jung when says, you are the symbol of the most extreme contradiction, he's admitting what we've already said, that Salome and, uh, and Elijah are, are representations of opposites. And they're, and they're one thing. They're opposites in union, which is the Ouroboros. And of course, they're the most extreme contradiction because they're polar opposites. You can't get more contradictory than that. And this is something that Jung is struggling with, continues to struggle with. And what I find particularly interesting is that Elijah, which, remember, this is just the voice of the unconscious speaking to Jung. He says, we are real. We are not symbols. So, He wants Carl Jung to see that that these symbols in his unconscious are more than, their existence is more than in his unconscious, that they're also existing in the conscious world, that they permeate everything in the conscious world. And you can see that. There's no mystery in that. Well, there is and there isn't. There's no mystery to the idea that opposites exist in nature. Opposites exist all around us. Our entire world is made up of relationships between things, and the only way that there are relationships between things is if they're different every, so everything bifurcates, everything splits off into opposites and, and you know, without end hot and cold up and down, you know, and on and on and on male and female on and on we go. Everything does this. And so this is real. It's not just symbolic. It's real. You know, your very brain is split bifurcated and to, between a right hemisphere and a left hemisphere. Between a consciousness and an unconsciousness, and that's that is not just symbolic. It's not just psychic even. It's it's real in the physical here and now. It's also real, you know, in, in our conscious reality. So I think why well, what Elijah is trying to tell Young is that we find the union of opposites within ourselves, and we're real, you know, just as we see the union of opposites in the beginning in our images of God. You might call that the pre-real, you know, before creation. We see the Ouroboros within ourselves just as much as we see it in our abstract myths, you know? All right, so, so Jung says, next, he says, who murdered the hero? Do I love her? And did I therefore murder the hero? She is one with a prophet, one with John, but also one with me. Woe was she the hand of God. So there's some interesting stuff here. I mean, this is obviously a reference to Salome killing John the Baptist, but it's also there's also a deeper level of understanding about the murder of the hero, because according to uh according to Young and his understanding of mythology, um, the hero the hero has to become the fool or has to die in order to become the hero there's a step in the process the hero has to die in order to be reborn you know your old self has to die so that your new self can can exist and um and so there's multiple levels of meaning about the murdered hero but then young's he starts he starts to acknowledge he starts to acknowledge that he might be he might be more one with Salome than he would like to believe because he asks, he says, do I love her? And did I therefore murder the hero, right? So he's struggling with the idea that he must love Salome, even though she's this evil horror, as he said. And he says, do I love her? And did I therefore murder the hero, right? So Salome's the one that murdered the hero, right? Not him. So he's talking about love if he loves her does that make him the one responsible for murdering the hero or does it make him and her the same and then he he continues with that thread he says she is one with the prophet right so salome and elijah are not different they're one thing the union of opposites right then he says one with john right salome is one with the person she killed what does that mean well, it means something like she killed herself. She sacrificed herself, right? And then he says, but also one with me. So now Jung can't even escape this. Everything has been sucked into the Ouroboros as it should. It contains everything. It contains, it contains Jung. It contains the slain hero. It contains the prophet and the horror. All of that is the Ouroboros, and that includes Jung, And to understand that requires a sort of ego death. That's why that sort of oneness comes up in mystic experience. Because if you are the Ouroboros, if you are the slain hero and God itself, are you really you? Am I really me? Well, in the experience of God, no, you aren't. And perhaps in reality, no, you're not. That's a mystery. All right, next It says, then the spirit of the depth spoke to me and said, therein you acknowledge her divine power. So when Jung says that he acknowledges that he and Salome are are one and that she is the hand of God, then he realizes her divine power. And I think that's something subtle and super important. And I have to stop and focus on it for just a second. If Jung kind of bleeds in together with Salome and the prophet, and bleeds in together with the slain hero John, and all of them really are just one thing—that's the Ouroboros, right? That's God. Now Salome is just a part of that; she's one broken off, you know, bifurcated piece of God. And he calls her the hand of God, and then says, "Therein you acknowledge her divine power." And what that means is something like what I've said many, many times on the podcast before. We are the experience God is having. What I mean by that is this. If Salome is the hand of God, that means that the powers in your uh, unconscious and, and yourself, you know, the forces that move you to act in the world, that those things are God, the God within you. And if you go and act in the world, you are acting. You are God acting in the world through, you know, your Yourself through your psyche, through your body. You're God acting in the world. And that is your divine power. That's what he's saying. It's amazing. It's like the thing that, that populates your unconscious. That is the thing that animates you. That is your life. That is your consciousness. And you take that into the physical material world and you live and you act. And those, and the life, your life, And the action, your action, is the life and action of God. Amazing. Amazing. And so this is what Jung is being confronted with. And at this moment, we get one of those italicized bits where it's not Jung's fantasy anymore. It's these spirits within him speaking. And Jung doesn't identify exactly with these spirits. And it goes like this. He who enters into his own must grope through what lies at hand. He must embrace the worthless and the worthy with the same love. Let your hope, which is your highest ability, lead the way and serve as a guide in the world of darkness, since it is of like substance with the forms of that world. All right, so what the fuck does that mean? When he says he who enters into his own... Must grope through what lies at hand a couple of things a couple of things dawn on me here. He who enters into his own means doing what Jung did when he said he, he wanted to live within himself and not within the world or within his own thoughts even he wanted to live within himself he sunk down into his own unconscious so that he could un- understand what he is apart from the world around him. So someone who enters into their own. Is someone who enters into their own unconscious. And remember, that's in in myth and in fantasy, that's the underworld. That's the dark place. And so you have to grope through the dark place. And that's what he says. You must grope through what lies at hand. And what do you what does that image come to mind? It's like somebody who can't see, and so they're reaching around, feeling, feeling the path in front of them, making sure they don't fall off a cliff or step on a sharp rock or something. If you can't see, that's what you do. You grope around you to, to map out the territory as though you were blind, right? Like Salome was blind. And then it says, he must embrace the worthless and the worthy with the same love. So that's what Salome was asking Young to do. Do you love me, right? Asking her to love, asking Jung to love this evil horror, as he called it, the thing that slayed, you know, the holy man of God, John the Baptist. Is that part of you you want to love? He says you must love the worthless and the worthy the same. The prophet and Salome the same. Why? Why can't you just? gravitate towards the good and ignore the evil? Why not not just shove it down and make the evil unconscious and try to live without it? Why not? Because that's what Jung wants to do. Maybe that's what we all want to do. And the reason is, it's the Ouroboros. The evil part does not come without the good part. The good part does not come without the evil part. They are one thing. That's why you must love the worthless as you love the worthy, because if you only love the worthy, you don't, you're not loving the thing that exists. You're loving a fiction. In order to love, you must recognize both halves and love them both. And then he says something interesting about hope. He says, let your hope, which is your highest ability, lead the way and serve as a guide in the world of darkness. So what is the world of darkness? Well, the world of darkness is the unconscious. That's what we're groping through here. He says, let your hope be your guide through the unconscious. And then he says that the reason, the reason that your hope can be your guide, he says, it is of like substance with the forms of that world. So the forms in the unconscious are what Carl Jung calls the archetypes. Those are the images that we see in dreams and fantasy. That's the images of the soul and the spirit of the depths and the spirit of the times that we've been talking about. These are things that exist in the unconscious, forces and powers that exist in the unconscious that we don't we don't have a direct connection to. We don't understand. They're a mystery. And your hope is something like they are. Your hope is something like an archetype. Isn't that interesting? See, archetypes are supposed to be Well, they're like instincts. They're like motivating powers within us. And hope is something like that. Like an instinct and a motivating power within us. So we use our hope to navigate through the unconscious. We we hope, what do we hope for? We hope for something better. We hope for good things for ourselves. We hope for transformation. You know, we hope that we will become greater, more capable, you know, more worthy and those are the sorts of things that are moving us towards the light. Those are the things that are moving us towards God, towards completion, but also towards this conflict, that in order to love God, we have to understand that, that what God is, is not just good, but it's also evil. It's not just light, it's also darkness. You know, it's not just the worthy, it's also the worthless. So hope is something immaterial, and yet it exerts power, motivation, right, on us. It comes from within and is not conscious exactly. This is how hope can be compared to the unconscious and why it is worthy to guide us through it. To hope is to imagine that what may yet be and to long for it. Hope is to desire, which, as Jung said, leads us to the I, that which desires the I is not the ego, but it's sentience, consciousness, God itself. So hope brings us to that. Desire brings us to that, to understanding the thing that hopes, the thing that desires. It's not you exactly. It's something, it's something that's within you and all things. Sentience, that thing that animates the world, the thing that flows from our unconscious and makes us exist... Consciousness itself, okay, then he says, "My deep interior is a volcano that pushes out the fiery molten mass of the unformed and the undifferentiated, thus, my interior gives birth to the children of chaos of the primordial mother, man, oh man, can you imagine a can you imagine a psychologist, a respected psychologist saying something like that, you know like Publicly, you know, a quote in a newspaper My deep interior is a volcano that pushes out the fiery, molten mass of the unformed and the undifferentiated. It's beautiful, but it's poetry, you know? It's poetry. It, it means something, but something deep. I think when he says, My deep interior is a volcano, well, the deep interior is his unconscious, right? And it's full to the brim with potential. That's another word I like to use to describe the unconscious or or to describe God is just potential, you know, or I all might use the word potentiality, you know. That's a volcano, it's just bursting with well, the force of creation and destruction, right? That's what a volcano does, doesn't is it not? A volcano erupts and destroys as it does. And what happens after that lava flow stops and cools off? All that rich, you know. Uh, minerals from the middle of the earth, you know, that just get spread out over the over the land. They just start sprouting with plants and new life immediately. You know, that's, that's what a volcano does. It's creation and destruction together. Another union of opposites. And what comes out of a union of opposites? As we've said many times, let's just take the obvious example of masculine and feminine. Those are opposites. You put them together, man and woman, and what do you get? You get a creative act. You get a, that's an image of sex. You get you get a creative act, a generative act. So what happens? Something is born from that union. And what does what does he say in this case? He says, "The fiery molten mass of the unformed and undifferentiated," he said, "gives birth to the children of chaos of the primordial mother." That's That's interesting. So first of all, the idea of a fiery molten mass of the unformed and undifferentiated. The unformed and the undifferentiated is another way of saying potential. Something that's unformed is something that could be formed. That means it's nothing now, but could be made into something. And that is exactly how I imagine God. God is like the stem cell of being. The thing that isn't something, let's say, but can be anything and everything. So it's something and nothing at the same time. It's the union of opposites, just like we talked about. And what, what gives birth or what it gives birth to, he says, is the children of chaos. Now chaos is a word uh, that comes up in uh, mythology to describe one half of the Ouroboros. In Greek, it's chaos and cosmos. Those are the two primordial gods: chaos and cosmos. Chaos is the unformed and undifferentiated. Cosmos is order, you know, the things that are formed and differentiated. So that's what we're talking about here. The children of chaos, the, the primordial mother, you know, that's the great mother, the mother goddess that we see in mythology um, everywhere. You know, the Venus figurines of, uh, you know, the Stone Age and, uh, you know, Diana, uh, you know, of the, of, the, of the Romans and Ishtar and, and Isis and all these great mother deities, they represent one half of the Ouroboros. He goes on, he says, he who enters the crater also becomes chaotic matter. And By crater here, he means the volcano that he just talked about. So the deep interior is a volcano. That's his unconscious. And if you go there, if you go into the crater, you also become chaotic matter. So imagine that. You take the time to go into your unconscious. You figure out how to do that, like Jung did. And you become chaos when you do that. The order of the thing that you are, that, that's the thing you call your ego, the thing you call yourself. That gets broken down into its constituent parts and just gets put together in any in any way that your unconscious might might want to to you know show you. That's what a mystic or a psychedelic experience is like. You become chaotic matter. You become chaos. You know, you become that part of the Ouroboros yourself. And he says. The formed in him dissolves and binds itself anew with the children of chaos, the divine and the devilish. So you go into your unconscious, right? You, you, be, you become broken down into these constituent parts and you're swimming around in this soup of potential and you pick up other things that way. You pick up other things from the unconscious. Those are things like the treasure, the valuable things that can be found in the dark, you know, where the hero goes into the cave to slay the dragon in our myths and brings back the treasure, the gold, the virgin. You know, that's what he's referring to. If you go into the chaos, that's a hero's journey. You go into the chaos of yourself, you risk death, you risk ego death, and you there can find, well, the divine and the devilish, as he says, something new some new part of yourself that you can bring back with it, some treasure. He says, these powers connect me with all forms and all distant beings. Yet the unformed is given only to my depths, not to my consciousness. And I think that there's something there, like when you wake from a dream and you can't remember just a few seconds later, all those images that were so vivid a few seconds ago, it all just disappears and that's like bringing the treasure back from the unconscious and just seeing those gold coins evaporate in your hands you know when you when you get back but there's something that's difficult about maintaining those things when you become conscious again you know it's not so easily won then he says something interesting he says the powers of my depths is prometheus who without determined thoughts brings the chaotic to form. Forethinking comes before thought. It loves the form in itself that it takes hold of and destroys the form that it does not take. All right, what in the Sam hell does that mean? And why is he bringing up Prometheus? All right, so he says the powers of my depths. And by that he means the forces of the unconscious. You know, the archetypes, the images that appear in his fantasy and dreams, the things that represent these instinctual, motivational forces within us um, that we don't really understand, that we don't seem to have control over, that that, that's our unconscious part of ourselves. And the power's there. Jung is calling Prometheus. What does he mean by that? What about the unconscious in Prometheus? What is the connection? All right, so it's important to, to know a few things. That in Greek... Prometheus' name means forethought. And that's why he says forethinking comes before thought. So what is in Jung's unconscious? The powers that are there are whatever it is that comes before thought. Whatever it is that makes thought possible. So you can think of it like, like this. The unconscious is the thing that makes consciousness possible. Because that's where our thoughts come from. So he's calling the unconscious by the name of a Greek god, Prometheus. It's also important to remember that what Prometheus did in the story, in the Greek story, was he stole fire from the gods and he brought it to earth and gave it to mankind. So mankind got a piece of the sun from Prometheus that was able to be used to create civilization, the things that we use to insulate and protect ourselves. Fire, you know? But fire is more than that. Fire is also the thing by which we see. It's the thing that we associate most with our consciousness, the all seeing eye, right? The thing behind our eyes, the thing that sees and feels within us. That's our consciousness. Prometheus brought that to us. The unconscious brought consciousness to us. Another interesting point about this is that Prometheus was known in ancient times as the bringer of light, right? Bringer of consciousness. In Latin, the bringer of light is Lucis Fair. Lucifer. Lucis Fair. In the biblical tradition, Lucifer was also the thing that brought consciousness to mankind. If you remember the snake in the garden, the snake in the garden convinced Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? That's how we, that's how we knew the distinction of the Ouroboros, good and evil. We understood the opposites. And that that understanding, that's consciousness. Without that understanding, we blend back back into one thing. The Ouroboros is one thing. The conscious and the unconscious together, right? All right, he goes on, he says, those who think base the world on thought, those who feel on feeling, you find truth and error in both. So the serpent lies between the thinker and the one who feels. They are each other's poison and healing. What a thinker does not think, he believes does not exist. And what one who feels does not feel, he believes does not exist. You begin to have a presentiment of the whole when you embrace your opposite principle, since the whole belongs to both principles, which grow from one root Alright, so clearly the unconscious and the conscious, he says, grow from one root. All opposites spring from oneness, from one thing and are one thing. And he says you find error if you take one path or the other that you need to understand both to understand the truth. And he says you have a presentiment of the whole when you embrace your opposite principle. And that's what the... That's what the spiritual journey that Jung's on is trying to get him to do, to embrace the opposite principle, to embrace the evil within God, to embrace the Salome within the prophet, to embrace the unconscious and the conscious. Isn't that beautiful? The thing that God is, the unconscious, exists within the conscious. So we we bring God along with us into this material world. All right, he goes on, he says, Salome loved the prophet, and this sanctified her. The prophet loved God, and this sanctified him. But Salome did not love God, and this profaned her. But the prophet did not love Salome, and this profaned him. So again, we see this, we see this bifurcation. We see this necessity of unifying opposites. The sanctity and the, and the profane. And the Ouroboros is the union of opposites, both the sacred and the profane, the conscious and the unconscious. And this bit ends with a, with a quote, such leads one along the way. The opposites should be evened out in the individual himself. So see, we have a responsibility and maybe even the, the, purpose, uh, the, the purpose and destiny of our existence Is to unify the opposites, that we're the thing that brings the conscious and the unconscious together. Isn't that amazing? When you bring the unconscious and the conscious together, when you unify opposites, you get the Ouroboros, get the thing that was there in the beginning, the thing that's responsible for creation, you get God. And what brings conscious and unconscious together is you and me. Isn't that amazing? Such leads one along the way. The opposites should be evened out in the individual. Amazing. That brings me to the next chapter, which I'm going to call Instruction. And it goes like this. On the following night, I was led to a second image. The old man waves to me. He calls Salome back. The old man eyes me searchingly and says, What do you want here? And Jung responds, A longing that stayed behind in your house yesterday has brought me here again. I am lost in my ignorance. It seems to me as if I were more real here. All right, so that's interesting. I don't believe Carl Jung ever did psychedelic drugs. I don't know, just because he did speak negatively about them. He said that having a mystic experience through the use of psychedelic drugs was cheating. It was, it was, it was the shortcut route and maybe it was somehow less for that reason. And I don't know that I agree with it entirely, but I think it's reason to assume that Jung may not have ever done that, although I could be wrong, but he may have had an experience similar that was, that was evoked through some other means, maybe meditation, let's say. Um, the reason I pointed out is because Jung says that when he was in the unconscious, when he was when he was there in front of the prophet in Salome in this fantasy world, he said he felt as if he was more real there than in the real world. And it makes me think of a word, a noetic, that comes up when we talk about mystic experience. It's described as the feeling of something being realer than real. And it's associated with mystic experience. It's associated with an ego death and a, a feeling of oneness and unity just like we're talking about here. And I think it's interesting that Jung's that Young's feeling the same way, that while he's in this fantasy world, he feels realer than real. And this is what's brought him back there. It's what brings a lot of people back to mystic experience to seek it out again and again. All right, so then Jung says, I stand before the play of fire in the shining crystal. I see in splendor the mother of God with the child, a Buddha sitting rigidly in a circle of fire, a many-armed bloody goddess. It is Salome. It takes hold of me. She is my own soul. Okay. So remember, Jung has been searching and seeking after his soul uh, while he's been doing this active imagination, while he's been exploring his unconscious. He's been seeking his soul. And he keeps rejecting the evil side of reality, the evil side of God. Um, He keeps rejecting the opposite, the principle, right? Including Salome. And now he recognizes not only that she and he are the same, but that she is his soul. The thing that he's been looking for, the thing that he's been seeking after. And it's not not Salome as the evil principle, exactly. It's Salome as the opposite principle. The opposite principle, and on one side you have the prophet. Uh, on the other side, you have Salome. The prophet, let's let's call him conscious. Uh, remember, he's the seer. He's the conscious part. Salome is the unconscious part. So it seems like what he's saying is his soul is something he found in the unconscious, or that it is the unconscious. Salome represents. Chaos, you know, opposite of, the, of, of order, the other side of the Ouroboros, the great mother that's represented in our myths and in our religions from going all the way back to the beginning of history. And Jung recognizes that thing as his own soul. The great mother is the thing that gives birth to everything, the thing that's responsible for the fertility of nature, the thing that's responsible for, you know, human beings giving birth, all of that in myth, right, that thing. That's the force that generates and animates the world. It's the soul of the whole world, including young. Amazing. Elijah says, you may call us symbols for the same reason that you can also call your fellow men symbols if you wish to, but we are just as real as your fellow men. You invalidate nothing. And solve nothing by calling us symbols. So again, reinforcing the idea that that opposites in their union and what that means, the power, the generative power that that evokes, that's something that doesn't just exist in our psyche. It doesn't just exist in our mind or in our unconscious. It exists in the real world too. It's something that flows through all of reality, the conscious and the unconscious both. And Elijah says, It is no small matter to acknowledge one's yearning. Yearning is the way of life. If you do not acknowledge your yearning, then you do not follow yourself. You do not live your life but an alien one. To live oneself means to be one's own task. It will be no joy but a long suffering since you must become your own creator. All right hair stands up on my arms when i read that so there's lots of philosophers that have talked about this schopenhauer comes to mind and some others that talk about human beings having this quality it's 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 usually called something like um striving you know, he calls it here yearning, but it's like we always want something and we always want more. And whatever that is, whatever it is that we want, that desire deep, deep down, Jung believes is completion. It's to become like God, like the God image of the Ouroboros, to find the what we need to round off ourselves, to make ourselves complete uh, so that we can become like God or that we can become God itself. And he says, this is the way of life. You must follow your yearning and the people who don't aren't living a genuine life. And this is this is something that Jordan Peterson talked about when he when we asked the question, where do your interests come from? Yeah, you know, that's your unconscious speaking to you. And and Jung calls this idea circumambulation that you have one Something will shine. It'll beckon to you like the golden snitch in Harry Potter. It catches your eye. It it sucks your attention to it. It's got this magical appeal that you can't understand. Everything else around it doesn't have that appeal. The thing that interests you does, and you don't know why. And if you follow it, if you explore it, it will show you some other part of it of of it that shines. And maybe it'll shoot you off into a different direction, into a related topic, into some other you know some other item that that. Uh, that will trail you along from one thing to the next to the next. And Jung imagines this like this infinite spiral, you know, you follow your interest from one thing to the next to the next. And you're just going down and down and down closer and closer all the time to whatever the real goal is, whatever the truth of that, of that pull on you is whatever you really, your interest is really pulling you towards. Um, and maybe that, Maybe that circumambulation never ends. Maybe it just spirals to eternity, but it spirals down to completion eventually. And everybody's going to find that what interests them is different because we all have different holes in our soul, right? They need to be filled differently. And your unconscious is going to take you on that journey if you let it. If you listen to yourself and you follow your interests and you follow your yearning. And if you don't, then you're going to live somebody else's life, right? That's what he says. It's not going to be what you need. Then he says to to live means to be one's own task, to be one's own creator, right? The, The person who you want to be, you're the only person who can make that happen. You're the contractor, you're the laborers, you're the raw materials, you're the person... Can tear yourself down and build yourself back, you're the person that can sacrifice the old self to become something better, something greater, and only you can do that. And then he says something kind of kind of Eastern along these lines. he's like that journey won't be a joy but a long suffering right and that's what Buddhists say: life is suffering. Jung said. Yearning is the way of life, and it will not be a joy but a long-suffering. Yes, exactly right. That doesn't mean that you should shy from it. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. It means that's the, that's the price that must be paid for what it is that you want. And there's always a price to pay, isn't there? And you're going to suffer one way or the other. You might, as well, you might as well suffer for the reason you want, right? All right, then Elijah says, the image of the mother of God with the child indicates to me the mystery of the transformation. He says, if forethinking and pleasure unite in me, so we can, we can think of forethinking as the unconscious, remember that which becomes before thought, and pleasure we can think of as, as the conscious because what are you conscious of, right? The best things you're conscious of are called pleasure. So let me just swap those words out and we'll read this again. If unconscious and conscious unite in me, a third arises from them, the divine Son, who is the supreme meaning, the symbol, the passing over into a new creation. I do not myself become the supreme meaning, but the symbol becomes in me such that it has its substance, and I mine. Thus I stand in worship before the miracle of the becoming real of the God in men. I lock the past with one key with the other. I open the future. This takes place through my transformation. (laughs) Motherfucker. That's good. That is good. All right. So, all right, boy, oh boy. So he says, if unconscious and conscious unite in me, a third arises from them, the divine son, and that's a reference to what he, what he talked about in the beginning when he said the image of the mother of God with the child. So you can imagine Madonna with child or Mary with Jesus. You've got the divine mother, you know, chaos, the one half of the Ouroboros, and she's holding something new, right? What does a mother do? She gives birth to something new. That's what makes her generative. So she's holding her divine son, you know, the Christ figure, the new God, right? The new God is the, is the you that can be born from the old you. If you make the right sacrifices, you can become something, something new. The new God, that's, this is what the mother of God holds in her hands, the potential. And this, this, he says, is what rises from the union of conscious and unconscious. Well, that's you and me. We are the baby. We are the new consciousness that's born from unconsciousness, that's born from the union of opposites in a physical way it's true with with our mother and father's gametes you know the sperm and the egg opposites come together and create you and and when that happens you are somehow magically bestowed a consciousness where does it come from it well it's bestowed from the place where all consciousness comes from from the unconscious the union of opposites brings that together the divine son is the new god that's you and me you know the new the new embodiment of consciousness that is, that, is, that is passed from this unconscious place into the material world, into the here and now, to actually exist, you know? And that is the supreme meaning, is what he says. It's something like God being reincarnated. It's something like that. Another very Buddhist idea that just as life is reincarnated and matter is reincarnated through the birth and death cycle and rebirth, that the same thing happens with our consciousness. The Hindus, the Hindus knew that. They, they they talked about that with Atman and Brahman. You know, Brahman is the soul of God, and Atman is your soul, and they're the same thing. And when you die, your soul goes back up and joins with with God, the place where it came. And when something new is born, the same thing happens. A piece of God leaves. Brahman to animate to animate your body. And so this is this is the image that I, I get here. And then he says something really interesting. He says, I do not myself become the supreme meaning, but the symbol becomes in me. What does that mean? The symbol becomes in me. The supreme meaning is the new God. It's the God it's God reborn. And that's something that is reborn within you. It's the new you. You sacrifice the old you to become something better, something greater, something more complete, something closer to God. Then he says, thus I stand in worship before the miracle of the becoming real of the God in men. The becoming real. God becomes real in men, in the material world. God becomes material world. Then he says something poetic. He says, I lock the past with one key. With the other, I open the future. And that's something that he does. I lock the past with one key. I open the future, right? Our decisions, our actions are going to create not only the self that we can become and will become, but the world that will become. Amazing. And then Elijah says, you create order according to what you know. You do not know the thoughts of chaos, and yet they exist. And this is a nod to the idea. Remember, chaos is the unconscious. The thoughts of chaos, whatever that might mean. It's like you don't know them. So that's that's a recognition of our separation of this veil of perception that keeps us from understanding our unconscious that feels keeps us from feeling like the unconscious is part of ourselves you know like it's something external to us that forces itself upon us but that's that's not it you know and and he also makes the point that that the thoughts of chaos exist that the unconscious exists even though we we don't have a direct experience of it Then, uh, then Jung says, as I became aware of the freedom in my thought world, Salome embraced me and I thus became a prophet since I found pleasure in the primordial beginning. So there's a symbol of Salome, which is, again, the unconscious, the chaos, the, the great goddess, and she embraces Jung because he found pleasure in the primordial beginning. That's the unconscious. Pleasure in the hug of the unconscious. Anybody who's ever had a mystic experience knows that pleasure. You know, the Latin word for that is mysterium tremendum. And the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead called it the intellectual love of God. Psychonauts called it an ego death. But that primordial beginning, that becoming one and understanding your unconscious and yourself to be the same thing, understanding subject and object to be the same thing, There is no greater joy. There is no greater joy. All right, that brings me to the last section, which we're going to call Resolution. It goes like this. Suddenly I saw that I stood before a steep ridge in a wasteland. I catch sight of the prophet high above me. I look. To the right it is dark night. To the left, bright day. The rock separates day and night. On the dark side lies a big black serpent. On the bright side, a white serpent. The serpents pounce on one another, and a terrible wrestling ensues. The black serpent seems to be stronger. Great billows of dust rise from the struggle. But then I see the black serpent pulls back. The front part of his body has become white, Both serpents curl about themselves, one in light, the other in darkness. All right, so let me stop there. Boy, that is good. Um, Very dreamlike, you know, very dreamlike. All right, so we have this um, image in the beginning of uh, the world split in two, and one half is dark and one half is light. Very clearly that represents the conscious and the unconscious. Now the rock that separates them, you know, the thing that separates the conscious from the unconscious, like we just talked about, the thing that unifies them is 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 you and I, you know, it's being. Um, and so that that seems to be represented by the rock. And on both sides we've got serpents, one black, one white, and obviously representing the conscious and the unconscious, just the same as the bright and the and the, the bright day and the dark night. And then they start fighting with each other, they're wrestling, and it, it reminds you, or maybe it should remind you, of the earlier bit where we, we talked about civil war. Young was in civil war with himself. Now the black serpent seems to represent the unconscious, the white, the conscience, and and Young notices the black serpent to be stronger, you know, and you, you can kind of imagine that because if the unconscious is the thing that is the force of chaos, you know, the, the thing that everything emerges from, the thing that makes... Substance possible, the thing that makes consciousness possible, the thing that makes matter and energy possible, that power definitely seems to be awe-inspiring and, and infinite, and terrible, and and all those things. And you know, in a lot of ways, that may seem stronger than than the conscious part. You know, certainly stronger than you and I might think of ourselves to be <laughs> all, all on our own. And they, and it's a it's a terrible battle between the conscious and the unconscious. But the stronger one pulls back, right? The black serpent pulls back, and Jung sees that the snake has become partly white. In the struggle, the conscious has become the unconscious has become par- partially conscious, and then both snakes are just curling around each other, so you can't really tell. The black and the white are all wound in together and, and mixed together, and I guess you have to understand that to mean, just like the symbol of the Ouroboros that we're most familiar with, probably the the, the yin and the yang symbol from Taoism. From you know, you've got a, a black on one side and white on the other, and then you've got this serpent shape that goes down the middle, doesn't it? And it connects and separates the two, doesn't it? And that's what we see here. And in the yin and the yang, on the dark side, right, you have a little dot of white, and on the dark side, you have, you have a little dot of white on the dark and a little dot of dark on the light side. And what that indicates is that the conscious can become the unconscious and the, and the unconscious can become the conscious. And there's a little of each and each, right? They're really one thing, opposites. And you can't have one without the other. That's how opposites work. Ian McGilchrist called that the, the coincidence of opposites. And well said. I mean, well said. You can't have one without the other. And so, in our conscious world, you know, in the here and now, there's a little bit of the unconscious in it, isn't there? Within us, within the world. And in the unconscious, there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of us there, there's a little bit of conscious there. That's where the consciousness emerges from, the unconscious, so it must be that way. It's a beautiful, beautiful image. All right, and it says, Elijah climbs down his form becomes smaller in descending and finally becomes dwarf-like. He then dives down into a crevice. I follow him down into a dark cave. All right, I'll stop there for a second. I, first of all, absolutely love this um, Alice in Wonderland image where you've got the prophet up on this high mountain, but as he's coming down towards young, he gets smaller and smaller and smaller. It's as though he's not making any progress towards young. He's, he's, he's shrinking, Right. To the point where he can jump into a crevice in the wall and finds himself in this huge, dark cave. And just like we were before, where we opened up the door of, of the house and walked into the cave, we're going now again into the unconscious. And it goes on. I hear the voice of the dwarf from below. Here are my wells. Whoever drinks from them becomes wise. But I cannot reach down. I lose courage. I leave the cave and everything appears strange and incomprehensible. All right, stop there for just a second. So I think it's interesting when uh, the prophet jumps into the crevice and he tells young, here are my wells. Whoever drinks from them becomes wise. Because what this is a symbol of, again, it's something in the unconscious, like a treasure, like something valuable, something new that can be brought from the unconscious back into the conscious. In this case, wisdom. The thing that Jung wants the most, that's the treasure that can be found in the unconscious. But Jung says he cannot reach down, he loses courage. Now anybody who's ever had more than one mystic experience, especially one that is reliably generated, like if you're doing psychedelic substances, let's say, to get there, you know what you're getting into, and you know the fear and the trembling. And if you sit down to have a mystic experience that way, having had one before, it's no laughing matter. It's no easy thing. It is fearful, you know. The idea of losing your ego after you've after you've had it happen to you once before, it's terrifying. It's like you know you're you're jumping into death in a certain way, and that's what happened here. He says, "I cannot reach down. I lose courage." You know how many people have have lost courage. Um, you know, trying to recreate that mystic experience. Then he says, I leave the cave and everything appears strange and incomprehensible. Anybody who's come out of a a powerful mystic experience, psychedelic experiences are a good example um, that there's something, it's sometimes called an afterglow, you know, that when you come down from the experience, it's not entirely gone. And there's this Quality about the world that is hanging over from the mystic experience. You know, it's not there normally, or or you don't notice it normally. But things have a certain glow. Things have a certain fluidity. Things have a certain mystery. Um, things ha- hold the potential for more meaning than they usually do, and it adds this element of intrigue and and uh, I don't know what, what word to use to your experience. And I think it's funny that Jung exp- explains that. I leave the cave and everything appears strange and incomprehensible. And that's what it brings to my mind, is this afterglow. It's like where you have more of the unconscious experience flooded into your, co- your conscious one than you ordinarily would. All right, then he goes on. He says, a serpent crawls over the stone. It is the serpent of the prophet. How did it come out of the underworld into the world above? I follow it and see how it crawls into the wall. I feel weird all over. The serpent becomes infinitely small. I feel as if I too am shrinking. The walls enlarge into a huge mountain, and I see that I stand before the house of the prophet. Okay. So I think the interesting bit here is Jung's asking, like he sees the serpent that he knows came from the unconscious. And he's like, how did this bit get out here into this world above? How did the this unconscious thing get into the conscious realm? And so that's what we want to focus on here, this connection between the unconscious and the conscious. And it's another reference back to the image of the Ouroboros, to the dark and the light, to the yin and the yang. The unconscious exists within consciousness and vice versa. Elijah says, step over to the crystal and prepare yourself in its light. A wreath of fire shines around the stone. I am seized with fear at what I see. The coarse peasant's boot, the foot of a giant that crushes an entire city. I see the divine child with the white serpent in his right hand and the black serpent in his left. I see the green mountain, the cross of Christ on it and a stream of blood flowing from the summit. I can no longer look. It is unbearable. At the foot of the cross, the black serpent coils itself around my feet. I am held fast, and I spread my arms wide. Salome draws near. The serpent has wound itself around my whole body, and my countenance is that of a lion. All right. So man, oh man. So you've got this weird abstract thing that's happened to him where they keep showing this crystal or stone and he's looking into it like he's looking into a um uh like like a you know like a what what do you call those those glass globe things that the that people see the 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 medium see and you know, see the future and shit like that. Whatever that's called. Um it's he's got one of those that he's looking into and he sees these weird images. He says he sees this beat up old boot and he sees a giant foot that crushes an entire city. And then he sees the divine child that's holding the black serpent in one hand and the white serpent in the other hand. Um, And then he sees a, a, a huge mountain with a cross on top and blood spilling down the mountain. You know, that's some crazy shit. That's some horror movie shit that he's seeing. And he can't bear to look at it. But then something weird happens. Uh, the black serpent wraps itself around Young's feet and Tori can't move. And his arms go out stretched wide, like he's like he's Jesus on the cross himself, like he's held in this position, like Jesus on the cross. And when that happens, Salome draws near. Remember, that's his soul. It's also the unconscious. It draws near to him. And it says he has the countenance of a lion. Now that's an image of of Jesus. A, a lion is an image of Christ. So he's standing there in the form of Jesus on the cross and he appears like a lion. And Salome says, you are Christ. The serpent squeezes my body in its terrible coils and the blood streams from my body spilling down the mountainside. So now you see that the blood that he sees flowing down the mountain, it's his own blood. And Elijah says, your work here is fulfilled. Tears fall from my eyes, and I hurry out into the night, like one who has no part in the glory of the mystery. So young feels unworthy and inadequate. he doesn't feel like he deserves to be in the image of jesus he doesn't he doesn't see his own blood as being redeeming the way that Jesus' blood is supposed to be redeeming. You know, he, he's, he's shying away from this experience. Um, not entirely, but he's not quite there yet when Salome says, you are Christ, you know? And it goes on. My longing led me up to the overbright day whose light is the opposite to the dark. The opposite principle is heavenly love, the mother. Love is visible life in action. I see Elijah high above me. This indicates that forethinking stands nearer to love than I do. Before I ascend to love, a condition must be fulfilled, which represents itself as the fight between two serpents. The realm of love is light. The realm of forethinking is dark. Both symbols have separated themselves strictly and are even hostile to one another. So we have this idea that the conscious and the unconscious are hostile to one another. You know, they're trying, each one trying to make the other into itself, something like that. And that's that image of the serpents that are, that are fighting with each other. Remember, we also had the image of the child holding the serpents in both hands. So we don't quite know what that means yet. All right, he goes on, he says, I recognize in this struggle This was the great war. But the spirit of the depths wants this struggle to be understood as a conflict in every man's own nature. Since after the death of of the hero, our urge to live could no longer imitate anything, it therefore went into the depths of every man and excited the terrible conflict between the powers of the depths. Forethinking is singleness. Love is togetherness. Both need one another, and yet... They kill one another. Since men do not know that the conflict occurs inside themselves, they go mad, and one lays the blame on the other. If you are aggravated against your brother, think that you are aggravated against what in you is similar to your brother. If you kill your fellow man who is contrary to you, then you also kill that person in yourself and have murdered a part of your life. You need wholeness to live on. All right, so this is, this is interesting. So we talked about this idea of civil war, and I think that's what he means when he says that the spirit of the depths wants the struggle to be understood in every man's own nature. He also says that when the hero dies, that we don't have anything to imitate anymore. That that's what we look to. You know, like if you're a Christian, let's say that and you, and your highest good is to be Christ-like, then you look at your hero, you look at Christ, and you try to become more Christ-like. And that's the direction and motivation for your existence. And if you don't have the hero anymore, then what's your, how do you understand yourself? And what are you aiming for? You're basically lost without a map, without something to look to, to imitate. And when that happens, he says, We sink back into the depths. Every man sinks back into the depths looking for that conflict. You find that civil war. You seek it out because that's going to give you a new hero. That's going to give you a new direction. That's going to give you something new to imitate. And you have to find it and create it for yourself. When he says forethinking is singleness, love is togetherness, I think it's something like one and, and many, you know, so we're looking at, the, at uh, again, opposites in union, again, we're just looking at it from a different perspective, that uh, reality is both one and many simultaneously, and you can't have one without the other, you need them both, and he says something interesting, he says, even though the spirit of the depths wants people to seek out this con- conflict within themselves, It says, men do not know that the conflict occurs inside themselves, and they go mad and blame one another. So you have this conflict you must have within yourself, and if you ignore that, if if you don't acknowledge that, you project it out into the world, and you project conflict out into the world. And he says, great is he who is in love, since love is the present act of the Creator. And that's pretty interesting, and I struggled with that for a minute. Love is definitely a, 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 the emotion that's most common uh, in a mystic experience. It's overwhelming the experience of love, so that there's some significance to it there. But when he says love is the present act of the creator, I had, had to think that through. It's like to love is to desire that which is. You know, the thing you love is there. You you. It's like something that. Something that pulls your interest, you know, something that something that grabs your attention. Why, why? It's hard to say. But the but to love is to desire something that's presently that's present to you. You know, another human being. Let's say there's some part of you that desires them, and and I think that that's recognition of well of of the thing that you are of consciousness. You love another conscious creature. What you're recognizing is the thing that you are. It's something like self-love, but seeing it, experiencing it as you must through something apart from you, through something other. You find yourself in someone else, something like that. Then he says, whoever is in love is is a full and overflowing vessel and awaits the giving. Whoever is in forethinking is deep and hollow and awaits fulfillment. Okay, so whoever is, whoever is in love is an overflowing vessel, and whoever is in is, is unconscious is in a deep in a, a deep hollow and awaits fulfillment. This reminds me of the same similar passage from earlier where he said the prophet is the farseer, and Salome is blind, and together they're a wholeness. And this is what he's saying again, right You have to bring them together to complete them. and so a vessel that's overflowing. And one that needs to be filled, if you bring them together, you have a completion. And this is the goal. It's also the symbol of God and the Ouroboros. All right, he says, You serve the spirit of this time and believe that you are able to escape the spirit of the depths. But the depths will force you into the mysteries of Christ. It belongs to this mystery that man is not redeemed through the hero, but becomes a Christ himself man, oh man, oh man. That, in my opinion, is the the part of Christianity that's been lost, and it should be revivified. Let me read that again. The depths will force you into the mysteries of Christ. Now, the depths are those archetypes, those archetypal forces, those forces in your unconscious that exist within you that you're not directly aware of, that are just acting within you, you know, unconsciously. Those things will force you into the mysteries of Christ. What does that mean? Well, he tells you, he says, it belongs to this mystery that man is not redeemed through the hero, but becomes a Christ himself. So we believe, um, you know, very often that uh, we can rely on, on heroes, on powerful people, on influential people, on noble people. To do the right thing on behalf of everyone, to save the world, to end the wars, to end hunger, to you know, end poverty, whatever it is, all these great things that we want, and we we push that responsibility onto this abstract person who we call the hero. Maybe we think about that as the state or the government. Maybe we think about that as uh, the, whatever the church. Um, we push it off onto some abstract person, and he says. That redemption doesn't come from a hero, not from an abstract person. You have to become the hero yourself. That The redeeming blood is your blood, not the blood of Jesus, your blood. And in fact, there's no difference between the redeeming blood of Jesus and the redeeming blood of your own. And that's why when Carl Jung saw that cross up on the hill and the blood flowing down off of it, he realized it was his own blood. Only you can redeem yourself. Only you can sacrifice the old God to become the new God. Amazing. Then he said, I saw something terrible. It was on the night of Christmas Day, 1913. So I'm just going to remind you that in Europe, 1913 was the First World War. Pretty deep into it. And he says, I saw the peasants boot the sign of the horrors of the peasant's war. I knew how to interpret the sign for myself. I saw the foot of a giant that crushed a whole city. How could I interpret the sign otherwise? I saw that the way of self-sacrifice began here. They will all become terribly enraptured by these experiences, and in their blindness, understand them as outer events. It is an inner happening, this is the way to perfection of the mystery of Christ so that the people learn self-sacrifice. All right, man, this, this is stunning. So Carl Jung, who saw the image before, remember, of a peasant's boot and a, and a foot, a giant's foot crushing a city. He saw that from a prior vision, right? Now in 1913, in the, in the deep dark depths of the First World War, he starts to realize that those symbols represented the peasants' war. And the, and the foot crushing the city is exactly that. The devastation of the First World War. So he sees almost a fulfillment, almost a prophetic fulfillment from an earlier vision. And then he takes it a step further because he's connecting this now with this with the mysteries of Christ. What's going on in the world around him, right? He says... I saw that the way of self-sacrifice began here. They will all become terribly enraptured by these experiences, and they did. The whole world was thinking about nothing but the war, day in and day out, fear and, and hope and all that. It occupied their minds. It captured everybody's attention in the freaking whole world pretty much, but certainly in America and in, and in Europe. Um, and it says, and in their blindness, understand them as outer events, so that all of the terrible devastation, the mustard gas, the the prison camps, you know, the, the trenches, you know, the bodies, all that terrible, terrible shit that happened in the First World War. He said, people are going to see that and imagine that they're outer events. that They're things happening between other people out there in the world. And Young says, they're inner happenings. No, 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 no their inner happenings the the first everything happening in the first world war, world war is an expression of what was lacking in, in in our unconscious in what was lacking within us that we didn't have a hero we didn't have we didn't have something to imitate and so we didn't have a direction that we fell into chaos that we needed to have this civil war, this internal conflict within ourselves to figure that out. But we didn't. Instead, we had an actual war. We projected those, those, the incompleteness within ourselves, we projected that out into other people and we called them the enemy and then we tried to destroy them. And he says, this is the way to the perfection of the mysteries of Christ so that the peoples learn self-sacrifice. So the terrible devastation and destruction of war that requires the actual sacrifice of all of these people is necessary to show us, to convince us, that we should never want this to happen again, that we should, we should recognize the sacrifices that were needed weren't of our young men. They were something in, in ourselves that needed to be sacrificed. Amazing. Amazing. Also terrifying, terrifying that people's psychology, especially the unconscious that we're that's a mystery to us anyway, can lead us to act out in such terrible ways to try to avoid having a struggle within ourselves. And we have to realize that we're capable of that. Amazing. He says. May the frightful become so great that it can turn men's eyes inward. I saw it. I know that this is the way. I saw the new God, a child. The God holds the separate principles in his power. He unites them. The God develops through the union of the principles in me. He is their union. All right, so, okay. So he said, he said may the war be so bad so terrible that people will finally turn their eyes inward. They can no longer look at the, at the destruction outward, so they finally do what they needed to do in the first place, and they bring their eyes inwards and examine themselves. And there they will find the new God, the child, be, you know, in potential. And then he talks about the child again. He says the God that separates the, the principles in his power. Again, that's the, that's the image of the child holding both snakes and one in each hand. The new God, the child, is what unites them. It's what unites the principles. And then the best part of this, as far as I'm concerned, is he says, but God develops through the union of the principles, right? The new God, the new you, develops through the union of of chaos and order, of consciousness and unconsciousness. But where does God develop? In me, he says. And that's the connection. That's the the mystic connection between God and man between the conscious and the unconscious amazing he said if you will one of one of these principles you are in one if you will both principles then you excite the conflict form thus arises the need the god appears in it he takes your conflicting will in his hand so this is just showing you that the, the joining opposites is a generative act and the new God is born in you. Amazing. Consciousness and unconsciousness brought together. The, the union of opposites is a generative force. What is it generating? The new God. God. So that it can, God can continue to be God. So that you can move closer to becoming God. To becoming complete. Like the Ouroboros. Then Jung says, When the Great War broke out, I knew that mankind was on the way to self-sacrifice. The spirit of the depths has seized mankind and forced self-sacrifice upon it. He leads mankind through the river of blood to the mystery. In the mystery, man becomes himself the two principles, the lion and the serpent. Remember, the serpent is the power of creation, and the lion is Christ, the redeeming hero. And, and we're both. We make ourselves new. Amazing. Then he says, because I also want my being other transformation, I must become a Christ. I am made into Christ. I must suffer it. Thus the redeeming blood flows. Through the self-sacrifice, my pleasure is changed and goes above into its higher principle. The mystery showed me in images what I should afterwards live. And that's exactly right. You know, a Christian is going to say that somebody should should try to live their lives to be like Christ, to be Christ-like. And that's what he said. The mystery showed me images what I should afterward live to be Christ-like. He also says that he's made into a Christ but had to suffer it and you can see that in the story of Jesus. He had to suffer terribly in order to become the Redeemer. And what Jung is saying is, you do too. You have to suffer terribly in order to become your own Redeemer, to become worthy to be able to do that. You follow your interests. You follow your desires. You go into the unconscious and so you make yourself better. You continue to sacrifice yourself than to be reborn. And better and better and better and closer and closer and closer to the goal each time. And then he says, you do not become God, but God becomes human. Fucking A, young. Fucking A, man. Exclamation point. And that brings me to my conclusion. Real short and sweet this time, you guys. This brings us to the end of of part one of the Red Book. The journey has been into the self and further down into the underworld of the unconscious. It has been a fever dream of magical realms, encounters with spirits, images, and soul. We watched as Young struggled with his own fear, doubt, and unsatisfied striving. With his inability to see the lowest as not only necessary, but of equal significance to the highest, The dream would not submit, however, and pushed Young onward. Through these trials, through civil war with his own self, we saw Young begin to understand. He learns that he is equal to the greatest of tests, that the great mother of the Ouroboros is his very own soul. His life is her life. His power is her power. He then enters the mysteries of Christ, by learning that sacrifice is not optional and is indeed something sacred. He learns at last that the God he seeks in the mystery is found where he least expected, in himself. And with this great conflict, the majesty of God and the banality of man are united in wholeness. Young sees the truth of his self as the creator of his self. He unites the low with the high. His flawed and lacking self purified through its union with the ground of being. So what lies in store next? We shall see in the next episode of the Two Tongues Podcast.
0: Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored. But infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties. But I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.